you can feel free to do that. Um, if you have your Bibles, like Peg said, we are in Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, this morning, actually, we're going to do a little bit of a project. Um, you, uh, if you have a piece of paper or something, there are pins in the seat back pockets uh, in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row behind you, uh, I'm going to have you write something this morning, uh, uh, really two things. So uh, this is what I want you to do. I need you to write down two or three loving, loving events or actions that you have personally experienced. So think of those, write those down, and then I want you to write down uh, two or three painful events or actions that you've personally experienced. So you, everybody's going to take some time uh, to do this, so go ahead and write those down. I'll give you about a minute and a half, so that's not a long time, but, but you can do it. I believe in you. Two or three loving events or actions. And uh, can we put that up on the, the slide there, uh, just to those two questions? That'd be great so that we know what those are. Two or three loving events or actions you've experienced. Two or three painful events or actions you've experienced. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to like say these. Just be, just rest assured. This is purely for your own project and own understanding. Take 20 more seconds. Looking good. Okay. So, um, question. Is there anything that falls into both categories? Oh, good. Good. Anything that falls into both categories. Like, uh, so, so this is, uh, like, w- w- what I'm trying to do this morning, and what, what I'm trying to help us see is, um, when I, like, when I ask myself to make this list, like, the things that rise to the top immediately, um, they... Like the things that I would list as most loving, I very likely would not list as most painful. Um, that, like the, the, the really loving things that I've experienced, I typically, like the, the things I think of are like, oh, somebody said something. Like when somebody affirmed something in me, they said something really nice to me, right? That, like, that was a really loving experience. Uh, when some, somebody served me in a certain way, you know, that was a really loving experience. Those weren't necessarily painful experiences. I don't tend to think of those as, as painful experiences. And then when I think of the painful experiences in my life, I don't typically think of those as loving experiences. 
right? So, so we might be tempted to separate these into two different categories, but the reality is there are actually things that fit into both categories at the same time. Like it's possible uh, for us to say that, uh, that even though these things don't feel like they should coexist to us, it's possible for us to say that, yeah, there are things, like somebody could at the same time be loving me while they're doing something that is causing me pain. That's a hard reality for us to acknowledge, but it is absolutely true that somebody could at the same time be loving me while they're doing something that is causing me pain. And so, so the reason that we don't like that feeling is because that feeling is really based on a lie, and this is the lie that we believe. It's if someone loves me, they will never hurt me. This is the lie we believe. If someone loves me, they will never hurt me. So, uh, so I'll share two personal categories with you uh, some, where, where I had to experience something simultaneously uh, painful and loving. So uh, there was the time that I spent with certain friends when I was a kid, the amount of time that I spent with certain friends. And, and my parents, those friends were not good influences on me, by the way. Uh, and my parents were very aware of this time that I would spend with certain friends. And so I would ask my parents, hey, can I stay over at this friend's house on, on this night? Or, hey, can I, can I spend time with this friend? Or wh- whatever it might be. And my parents said no. And that was really painful to me. I did not enjoy that very much, but my parents were wise and discerning and they knew what was for my good. And so they, they did this thing that did not make me feel very good out of a desire to love me, right? So that's... that's one category. A second category is um, I had a pastor. I was starting to be developed uh, for pastoral ministry, and so, so I had a pastor who was over me, and what he did is he put me into a leadership situation where I was going to have to have a lot of really difficult conversations with people. So uh, you may not have gotten to know me that well yet, and so this will be an opportunity for us to dig a little deeper into who I am. I do not like difficult conversations. It's really hard for me to tell people hard things, right? Because like I like the worst thing in the world that you could ask me to do is make somebody feel uncomfortable. I do not enjoy making and if, if I could say something that would make you feel uncomfortable or or cause any amount of pain to you, like that is a really disturbing reality to me, just like in the middle of of my personality and everything that I made up of. But what this pastor friend of mine, he knew this about me. And he wanted to develop me, and so he put me into situations where I was going to have to consistently, on a, like at least once a week, be having some kind of difficult conversations with people. And that, that, that hurt me. That caused me a lot of pain. He knew it was causing me pain, but this is the thing that we both knew. We both know that it was going to be for my good. We both knew that it was going to be good for me to learn how to love other people by telling hard things that they need to hear, Right? So, so by putting me in this situation, it was actually one of the most loving things that somebody could do to me, but simultaneously, it was like one of the most painful things that somebody could do to me. So, uh, so this is a, the concept that we need to wrap our, our minds around this morning as we consider the idea of love. So here's the truth, the truth to that lie that we believe. Sometimes the most loving actions can create painful experiences. Sometimes the most loving actions can create painful experiences. So before I go any further, we actually need to go back and and review a little bit. We took a week from our, so go back two weeks now. Uh, We were talking about generous love. We're in a series on 
love. And we developed a definition of really what the New Testament has to say about love. So uh, first I want to talk about our strategy. This is why we're talking about love this morning is because our strategy here at Alliance Bible Church is we develop Jesus followers who worship, love, and go. So we want to talk about what it actually looks like to love people well. And the New Testament vision of love is this. It's Christ-rooted action for my Christ-bought family exercised through humility and sacrifice. So this morning we're going to talk about um, the reality of disciplined love. Uh, Love that is willing to say hard things sometimes. So uh, I need to put a caveat on this though. Because there are some of you who have actually experienced other people inflicting pain on you. Whether it be uh, physical pain or verbal pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain. uh, And otherwise, and they did it in the name of love, but they had no ounce of humility or sacrifice in what they did. And I, 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 wanna, I want us to be very careful as we walk into this realm of disciplined love and as we, as we start talking about the reality that, yes, sometimes what it means to love somebody is to do something that might hurt them, but we have to, talk, we have to be really careful with that because if we walk into that realm... Uh, where we don't have any ounce of humility or sacrifice, or the person who is, quote, disciplining us doesn't have any ounce of humility or sacrifice towards us, then what we're talking about really is abuse. And we need to call that out for what it is. So I do want to put a caveat, because I don't want anybody to feel like, oh, you're just going to tell me what to do, you're going to correct me, you're going to make sure that you enforce your will upon me. No, like, I want any ounce of discipline or disciplined love that might come forward to be rooted in humility and sacrifice. Because uh, this happens when people, you know, they're, they're grabbing for power, they're, they're seeking coercion, these sorts of things. And so, uh, so at the same time, we need to acknowledge, though, that humble and sacrificial people will sometimes have to say things to us that will be painful for us, that will be hard for us to bear, but they say it because they love us. So two weeks ago, uh, we introduced this series on love. We have these categories of generous love and disciplined love. So a love that gives to someone and a love that works to grow someone. These are the the things that we talked about. A love that would give of self for the sake of another. And and, um, that was the generous love side of things. When, When we talked about this, we said you can't really have one without the other. So if you have a love that gives of self for the sake of another, but, but you never actually call anybody to any sort of holiness, or you never actually execute any sort of discipline or anything like that, you never actually seek to develop that person, then what happens is you have somebody who's, who's going to affirm a person while sin, Satan, and death are going to work in their lives. Right? And so we don't want to allow that to happen. At the same time, if you have somebody who's not willing to sacrifice for somebody, while they call somebody to something difficult, then you have the category of abuse. So, so either of these things, they end up looking like something that's much different from love. And so, so these two things belong together. So we looked at generous love two weeks ago. This week we're looking at disciplined love. Um, and so as we walk into the category of discipline, I just want us to ask the question, why does discipline matter? And so we're going to be looking through Hebrews 12 to figure out the answer to that question. In verse 5, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises 
every son whom he receives. So, when we come to faith in Jesus, we get this amazing gift from God. We get a gift of salvation. A gift of approval before God. We get a promise of a future where everything that is wrong inside of us and wrong inside of this world will be done away with. These are really, really good things that we get. We place our trust in Jesus and God showers blessings on us. And they're not necessarily physical or material blessings. They're blessings of promise. They're blessings of identity. They're blessings that say something about who we are in Christ. We get a reconciled relationship with our Father in heaven. We get all of these amazing things. So God shows his love for us in those ways. But here's the thing. God's love for us also has implications. So, uh, so, he uses the word chastise, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. That word chastise, it literally means to beat with a whip. Like this was the word that they used when they described the torture that happened to Jesus when he was uh, going to the cross. When the Roman soldiers, what they were doing is they were chastising him. It's the same word that we use for flog. That's exactly what was happening. So when it uses, that's a really powerful word for them to use to describe God's attitude, God's discipline towards us, but this is the word that the author uses. So for all the joy and wonder and righteousness that we receive from God through Jesus, for this reconciled relationship with, that we have with our Father, for the sense of, that, that we actually get to be called approved and righteous and holy and blameless, all of these things, it also comes along with really, really hard discipline. Because God loves us, he will correct us. He will do things that cause pain to us, and sometimes it might cause a lot of pain. So, uh, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, it goes on, verse 7. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So this is what the author is saying. is saying discipline is actually a mark of God's love for us. So that when we receive discipline, we actually become aware of the fact that God is still concerned about us. That God still sees us as his child. That God is still wants good inside of us. He wants to bring about good things in our lives. And then the writer gives an illustration in verse 9. He says, besides this, we have all had earthly fathers. So he's looking now at our earthly fathers and saying, uh, they are, they are this, this idea of how discipline works out in our lives. And, and those earthly fathers, they disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits? And live. So it says, it says, listen, many of you have had fathers who, who have had to discipline you, who have had to correct you because they loved you, right? Because they, they wanted to care for you and you still respect them. You still have a concern for them. So the, 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 the implication is then how much more should we endure our heavenly father's discipline? Because he loves us more than anyone could. So this is why your discipline matters. There are two reasons why your discipline matters. Number one, it provides you a certainty that God is your father. So this is, this is an assurance. So in those moments where we're facing hard things, maybe God is calling us to repentance, and when we repent, it hurts sometimes, and when that takes place, what it does is it reminds us where our identity actually is as a child of God. 
It grounds us in the fact that God is our Father, that God has our best interests at heart. So these painful circumstances that, that God allows to take place in our lives. Maybe, uh, maybe you have an internal struggle against sin, and that internal struggle against sin is really, really painful for you. You're fighting to overcome it, and God is allowing you to deal with that pain, to experience that pain, because he wants to bring about good things in your life. Maybe you have anxiety, and your anxiety is putting you at odds with the fact that Jesus say, says things like, be anxious for nothing. And these two things are, are fighting against each other. And, and what it's teaching you to do is, is to learn to rest in your heavenly Father and the provision that he has to do for you, right? So God is allowing you to go through that pain to teach you how to rest in your identity in him. Maybe, maybe you're just dealing with the consequences of sin in your life. And, and, and in those circumstances, God lets us deal with the consequences of those things so that we know the gravity of what sin can actually do. Right? All of this stuff is stuff that reminds us that God is always working in the midst of the pain. That he hasn't given up on us. That he's still out for our good and that he still regards us as his child. Right, so that's the first reason. It provides us a certainty that God is our Father. The second reason that discipline matters is this. Whatever pain you might endure pales in comparison to the inheritance that you've received. So the promise that we get of not just heaven, but this place uh, where, where sin will be done away with, where uh, you know, we have these politicians who run our world who do unjust things. Heaven will not be unjust. Heaven will be perfectly just. We get these promises of these amazing things. God gives us a heavenly inheritance. So on top of that, so God, the Son of God is Jesus. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son of God is Jesus. Jesus has an inheritance from the Father. That's what it means to be a child of somebody. He, uh, you, get, you get everything that your parents have. So there's this inheritance that's promised to Jesus. But guess what? When the Bible says we are in Christ, when we believe in Jesus, what that's actually telling us is that we get everything that Jesus gets. This inheritance, this heavenly inheritance. So whatever pain we have to go through right now, it's worth it because of the inheritance we receive. So yes, that's, that's why it matters to us. But you, then you might ask the question, okay, so then what's the point? Is God just some like masochist in the sky who wants to cause us pain for the heck of it? Is that what it is? Like, because I have a, a hard time understanding when I'm in the middle of my pain, why exactly I have to face that pain. So do you see the benefit of discipline? He goes on in verse 10. This is what it says. It says, for they disciplined us for a short time. This is our earthly fathers. They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this is what discipline does. Discipline creates two realities for us. First thing it creates, it makes us more holy. That is a reality that occurs inside of us. It, it makes us more holy. The second thing is that the second reality that it creates is it produces righteousness in our spheres of influence. So, uh, so we need to unpack these things a little bit. Let's talk about holiness for a second. God had an intention when he created human beings. 
He had a certain intention. What he wanted is, is he wanted human beings to be people who loved perfectly. People who would steward their responsibilities over creation really, really well. He wanted, uh, he wanted it to be people who would invest in the world and make it a fruitful place, right? That's what he said. He said, be fruitful and multiply. See, every aspect, though, every aspect of the way that, that we relate to the world now has been marred by sin, has been marred by our own desires, has been marred by uh, wicked hearts that are turned in on themselves. And so, so this thing happened where we fell and we wanted our things and we didn't really want what God wanted. And so holiness, while uh, sometimes when we talk about holiness, we get a little scared of the word. Even we have things that we say like, oh, you're holier than thou. So, so the word holy is then used as, as more of a derogatory term at that point than, than something to describe something good. So we need to talk about this reality of holiness. And part of the reason that happens, part of the reason people take it as a derogatory term is because uh, holiness starts out as thinking about the heart. But then over time, it morphs into thinking, oh, I have to get all these actions right. I have to correct all of these behaviors in my life, and I need to do certain behaviors and not do certain behaviors. But you know what holiness is really about? It's about taking these hearts that are turned in on themselves and twisting them around so that they're in the place that God intended them to be. That's what holiness is really about. It's about fixing what's wrong inside of our souls. So uh, this, the song Simple Gifts uh, is a really, really powerful song. Uh, the, uh, there, it was based uh, originally on a poem by Judy Collins, and this is what the poem said. It says, When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight, till by turning, turning we come round right. So what happens is that God, actually, like these people who are twisted and inverted in on themselves, who are only concerned about their own self and, and what we need, God actually reaches inside of us and what he's really interested in is helping us reveal our hearts and then twisting our hearts so that we might be untwisted, right? And so this is why, this is why we talk about repentance so much here, because we believe like repentance, our turning away from sin and turning towards God, that, that God is taking this process to turn us around right, to, to, to make us into the kind of people that he intends, intends us to be. So that's, that's the first category, holiness. The second category is righteousness. So I want to, righteousness is the fruit of holiness. So, so as God makes us more holy, what starts to happen is that our holiness then starts to affect the spheres around us. Like, the justice actually starts to take place in the places where we interact. So, so maybe you go into your workplace and, and you operate in your workplace with more integrity, and then the people around you start to notice that you operate with integrity, right? So then righteousness is starting to pour out of you because God is making you more holy. This is, these are the kinds of things that are happening. Like, as, as God makes us more holy... Then, then things start to happen around us in the places where we go with the people that we interact with where it actually starts to affect them, affect the places that we inhabit so that righteousness becomes, it describes the places that we live. Justice describes the places that we live. So, so let's talk about reality. Nobody in history exemplified this more than Jesus Christ. Jesus was perfectly holy. He had not one stain of sin on him. He was not at all inverted on himself, but he was concerned solely with the Father's glory and loving others. Like those were his two primary focuses. And so you know what? Everywhere Jesus walked, righteousness kind of fell out of him. It like 
poured out over all the people that he interacted with, where like justice actually started to take place in his spheres of influence because he was walking in those places. So then as he lived in holiness, it started producing righteousness all around him. So can we talk about what this, this passage is really saying? It's saying this, God disciplines us to make us more like Jesus. God disciplines us to make us more like Jesus. That's the exact reason, and that's, that's why it matters. That's what God is trying to accomplish with it. So then the writer, he goes into uh, various practices. So he says, this is what God is disciplining you for. So let's talk about how we carried that discipline out. So this is why you, have, uh, you got a sheet of paper in your bulletin this morning, because there are six practices that are outlined in this text, and they're practices that I actually want us to carry with us. They're practices that I want us to remember. How we practice disciplined love. We're going to work through these together. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17. Verse 12 says, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So there's an encouragement here and the encouragement is the pain of discipline is very hard. But do you know what results? Do you know what actually comes out of discipline? You get to live more as God originally intended. And so that that which is out of alignment might actually be brought back into alignment. So let's talk, talk about an individual practice that I would desire all of us to have. That practice is this. We gladly welcome correction to bring us back into alignment. I would love for the posture of each and every person in this room's heart to be a posture of gladly welcoming correction, that we might be brought back into alignment. This morning we were praying, and we were praying for things that we were thankful for, and I was getting ready to preach this sermon. And you know what? I, I had to say, God, I'm thankful that you want to bring me back into the line, to alignment, and that sometimes you do really hard things to me in order to make that happen. Okay, so, so um, I have blind spots. Uh, you know, I don't always see everything rightly. I don't always act in the ways that I should act. You know, when I serve on teams, when I lead, uh, I, I want to make sure that there are people who serve alongside me, who lead alongside me, who are, who are together with me, who are helping me see the blind spots that I have. I actually, I, I want to make a point to tell those people, hey, if I'm missing something, I need you to say something. Because I can't see it. I don't have the ability. It's in, it's in my blind spot, right? So, but I want to be corrected. I want to be the kind of person that God desires me to be. And so uh, the, one of the, the practices would be that we all individually would have sort of a welcome, expectant attitude for correction to come our way. That we would actually maybe even be excited about the fact that God might correct us. Right? So that would be, that would be a first practice. Uh, verse 14 goes on. It says, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for literally means persecute. It means chase after it. it. Violently go after it. Don't stop until you are able to achieve this. And so, and then it says the thing that we are striving for is peace. So peace is like really hard for us to understand because peace, we just think, oh, it's like an absence of avoidance of conflict, right? That's what peace is for us. But, but peace in the Bible is a very different category. So, so in the Old Testament, they called it shalom. 
And Shalom described this, this sort of atmosphere that, that uh, promoted right functioning and flourishing of life. Shalom is a, about a place being totally in tune with God and his will, about people being totally in tune with each other. And that's, that's what's taking place in Shalom. And so when this happens, it actually it contributes to human flourishing. That's, we believe that's something that happens. We believe that that's something that God intended in the garden when he, when he originally created things. So Shalom creates spaces where, spaces where selfishness is turned into love, where poor people are taken care of, uh, where we always live in light of our reconciled relationship with God, where people, are, they walk into the, our midst. When people come in amongst us and, and they actually sense that this is a place where they might be able to flourish. They actually sense that God's love and presence is in this place. So here's the practice. The practice is this. We act quickly when we sense relational discord is present. So we don't ignore it. We don't tell it to go away. We don't say it's not that big of a deal. But we actually find a strategy to address it until it's resolved. Like that's what we want to do because when we sense that there's not peace here, that there's not shalom here, then this relational discord, if, it, if it's not addressed, it's actually going to jeopardize this, this church of becoming a true place where God's peace reigns. He goes on and says in verse 14, he says, and, so, so we're striving for that, and we're also striving for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So I, I want to clarify one thing. We don't see the Lord because of how holy we are. Like that's, that, you can read this verse and think, oh, I have to be more holy in order to see the Lord. But that's not actually what it's saying. The implication is when we trust in Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, he gives us the promise of heaven and then he also sets us on a path. He sets us on a pathway of holiness where he starts working out his purposes in our life. We become citizens of heaven. So that right now we're citizens of the earth, but when we trust in Jesus, we actually become citizens of a greater kingdom. And what happens is that heavenly citizenship, it actually begins to work itself out more and more in the places that we live and operate in the world. So we serve our neighbors more. We operate more with integrity in the workplace. We treat everybody with respect and dignity. Like these sorts of things start happening. And this is what we do. We also strive to see our brothers and sisters do the same thing. So we don't just do it for us. We don't just care about holiness for us, but we care about holiness for everybody. And so the practice is this. We fight to see our heavenly citizenship reflected in everything. So I just ask the question, what's at stake if we don't do this? If we don't carry this practice out? Well, I think like we, we misrepresent God. So uh, recently, uh, I'll kind of tell you a story. Um, I, my aunt passed away, and I um, had to do her funeral. And um, there was a question. Uh, the question was, we didn't actually know whether or not she had trusted the Lord. Um, and now, praise God, through a series of processes and conversations and sort of digging to find things out, we found out that, that she did trust the Lord, right? So that's something to celebrate. But, but in that moment where I didn't know, you know, it's really tempting in those moments to say things like, they're absolutely with the Lord now. They're absolutely in heaven now, those sorts of things. That, because what we're doing is like trying to set some sort of comfort into the situation, right? And that's understandable. But, but Andrea actually held me accountable to really making sure I knew that I knew that I knew 
that this was the case because I can't just, like, I can't misrepresent God. I can't mis- misrepresent how salvation works. I can't mep- misrepresent, like, what Jesus actually does in people's lives. That he actually creates some sort of change. And so, so I, I had to be, uh, have a lot of integrity with the way that I shared the gospel, with the way that I investigated, right? And so, so my wife had to make sure, she had to hold me accountable to this. To, hey, make sure that you, you represent the Lord well in this situation. Okay, so, so we fight to see our he- heavenly citizenship reflected in everything. Verse 15 goes on, says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. This is, these are some of the, like, the most powerful directives for me as a pastor. Like, the way that I relate to this is, it's really, really deep. Um, so the good news about Jesus, we are all about here, the good news about Jesus. It is like, every Sunday, gosh, I, every Sunday, I want people who are in this room with us to know that there is a Savior who cares about them, and doesn't just care about them, but he actually gave himself for them. He gave himself that we might have life. I don't want anybody to come through this place and not hear about who Jesus is. Right? The good news about Jesus is central to every single thing that we do. So, so it creates the motivation for every action that would hopefully come out of us. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the means by which God extends his grace to us. It's the reason honestly, that like we do care about doctrine and theology, right? It's why elders are actually called to, to guard the teaching of the church because we need to make sure that we get the gospel right because that's the thing that we're called to believe, right? This is why all of these things are, are so important. So, so one of the things, actually, I get really anxious over every time I prepare a sermon is whether or not the gospel is going to be crystal clear, I want to make sure that every single person in the room will hear the crystal clarity of the gospel because I want to make sure that the gospel sinks into hearts and lives. And you don't just hear the gospel once and then believe. The gospel motivates every single thing that you do. It motivates the way that we live the Christian life, right? So I cannot stand up here and not preach the gospel because it is my responsibility to make sure that none of us fails to obtain the grace of God. Sorry, I get a little... (laughs) A little excited about that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so a practice, a practice. We make sure that the gospel is clear and central in each other's lives. Absolutely, we will, we will practice that forever. We'll strive for it. It goes on, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So you want to know what, what most, what most jeopardizes our church. When any of us decides to let pain, or frustration, or anger go unaddressed and unexamined in our hearts and begin to sit there. And then once it sits there for a little bit, it begins to, to shade how you look at maybe another person. And once, once it goes past that, it begins to define your relationship with those people. So this is, this is what bitterness is. I, I want to define bitterness for us. Bitterness, bitterness could start as simple as an annoyance. It's annoyance, maybe it's anger, maybe it's frustration. 
But then what happens with those things is, is they steep. So kind of like you, you put tea in really hot water, and you put it in there for a long time. You let it steep. You let the flavor of that tea permeate every aspect of the water. Right? This, is what, this is how bitterness works. Annoyance, anger, or frustration steeps inside of a selfish heart. It sits there. You know, I, I've watched this take place inside of people. I've actually, I, I've been in, I've been a part of serving in leadership in uh, five different churches over my lifetime. And I can tell you that in maybe all but one of those churches, I have seen it actively damage the body of Christ. So there are times when I've seen these things steeping around and when I've seen them brewing inside of people and you know what I didn't do? I didn't say anything. I watched bitterness inside of a brother and, and every time I didn't speak up, it wreaked a little bit more havoc in the body. It wreaked a little bit more havoc inside of that person. And you know what it does eventually? It causes people to get angry, to, to make factions with each other, to talk about other people behind their back, to, to start spreading lies and rumors about other people. Eventually it causes people to leave the church. Eventually, you know what it does? It causes people to doubt that this faith is really effective for anything. That's why it says in this one, like it doesn't say by, me, by it many become defiled, but this one, it does say it because it's toxic. Bitterness, it starts small and inside of a heart, but then eventually it spreads and it, and it, it does all of these things and, and, and it causes people 100% to take their eyes off of Jesus. More than anything else, you get people who, who end up being more concerned about their own agenda than they do about the cause of Christ. And so a practice that I will strive to maintain here is this. We, we attack the cancer of bitterness. We call it out. We warn people about it. When we see it rising up inside of their hearts, we speak the gospel to it. And we do anything we can to get rid of it before it can spread. So I, I get the uh, sense if I get the sense that there is bitterness in a relationship, and it may not even be bitterness towards me, but if, if I hear it come up in somebody's conversation or, or language or, or whatever it might be, I, I'm going I'm to try to address it. Like, I'm going to say something about it. I'm going to encourage forgiveness or reconciliation. Maybe, maybe I have to sit down and have an intense conversation with that person so that we can dig up what's actually going on because I can't let it sit. We can't let it sit. If it takes place, it needs to be addressed. And so... So these are the kinds of things that we have to do because of the damage that it can cause, because of the damage to the kingdom, the damage to the church, the damage to the individual that it has the ability to do. So we call it out and we attack it. And it goes on in verse 16 and 17. I didn't have Peg read this because this is really a a weird section of scripture here. So go with me for a second. 16 and 17, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay, this is probably one of the most confusing things in all of the Bible that I think I've ever read. So we're gonna, we're gonna go after it for just a second. So uh, a little history lesson. Jacob and Esau are brothers. 
Esau was the firstborn, which means that he owned the birthright. He owned the inheritance. Everything was going to go to him. And so Esau was out hunting one day, and he was hunting for a very long time. And Jacob was at home, and he was making soup. And uh, Jacob, he's, he's sitting there, and then Esau comes back, and he's very, very hungry. And so he asks Jacob for some of the soup. And, uh, and Jacob, he gets a little crafty, and he says, oh, I'll, I'll give you some. But here's the deal. You have to give me your birthright. You have to give me your inheritance. And so Esau agreed to give up his inheritance for a little bit of soup. Now, can we talk about what this really means? This would be like giving up the future of like a multi-million dollar empire for just a little bowl of soup. Like that's, that's what we're talking about. So, so the, you're trading off this future for something really, really small. So Esau is definitely not playing the long game in this situation. And what this passage is telling us is that it's clear Esau didn't actually see the value of his inheritance. He didn't recognize the value of what he already had so much so that he was willing to forsake it and give it to Jacob for just a little bit of soup. And here's the thing, he couldn't do anything to change that reality. Like once it was done, it was done. So when, uh, when the writer is talking about sexual immorality and unholiness, what he's really, he's zeroing in on people who value temporary pleasures more than they value the inheritance that has been promised to them. So when people are engaging in these things, it's actually, it's dangerous for the body of Christ because people can begin to think that this faith that we have has no impact on our lives in the present. Because we say that we value our inheritance, but we live as if we value other things, right? So we live how we want. So there's this like idea out there that, oh, hey, I can live how I want because Jesus saved me. But the danger of that is that anybody who looks at your life and says, oh, you're a Christian, but that, that has no impact on your life. You don't actually value this faith that you have. You value these earthly things more than this eternity that you say that you have, right? The, it, it all, all of these actions, this sexual immorality and unholiness, he focuses in on that because when people see those actions, it becomes really clear that you don't actually value the results of your faith. So a practice. We call each other to value our eternal inheritance more than temporary pleasures. That's the practice. So when temporary pleasures get in the way of, of loving and honoring God above all else, of loving, loving and honoring each other, our faith loses its compelling nature. And so this is the reason we call each other to value our eternal inheritance more than temporary pleasures. Okay, main point. This is the main point of the whole thing. Welcome discipline. Without it, we become cancerous. And with it, we become increasingly like Jesus. Welcome discipline. Without it, we become cancerous. With it, we become increasingly like Jesus. So, um, so, so what? Our so what was the sermon. It was the whole thing. So uh, this is what I'm going to say. Adopt these practices. Figure out how to incorporate them into your life as regular values. So uh, actually, I want to talk to you about one way that we, uh, as an elder team, are trying to adopt these kinds of practices. We've restated them as values. 
uh, values for how we relate to each other on a team. So if you flip this piece of paper that you got over, on the back, you can see Alliance Bible Church Elder Team Values. And we, we talk about these things. We make sure that we hold to them. We hold each other accountable to them. And the reason is, is because we really care about the implications of what this thing in Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12 is telling us. That we need to be disciplined in the way that we love each other. And so, we keep short accounts with each other. Love covers a multitude of sins, but when we are unable to let go of an offense, we commit to going directly and immediately to the one who has offended us. When on the, the receiving end of these sacred moments, we humbly listen and receive to further cultivate a culture with short accounts. So uh, one commitment that I want to make to all of you is if there is a way that, that I have offended you, I, I will humbly, I will strive with all of my might to humbly receive that thing that you have to say to me because I want this to be a place where we can correct each other. So short accounts. Number two, uh, resist silos. So off-the-record conversations are almost always inappropriate and build a silent team within the team that ultimately and inevitably causes division. The pull to these conversations is strong, but the Holy Spirit has given us self-control. So one of the ways, like this practice for us as elders, what this looks like is, is we make sure that the conversations that we have between two of us, uh, they, they happen in the whole group as well. Uh, we make sure that we're not talking about one person behind their back uh, because it's important that the, all, the whole group is involved in this. And, and if one of us hears that, we actually say, hey, you actually, we hold to short accounts here, so you need to go and talk to that person about it. Right? So that's number two. Number three, address the hunch. It's better to address the hunch and confront an individual and be wrong than to avoid the hunch and be right. We invite and humbly receive others' hunches, which at the least reveal a growing perception. As sinners, we admit that sometimes others may see a sin or struggle in us even before we are able to see it in ourselves. So, so we approach each other with an open posture of, okay, you might be wrong about that, but at least what you told me has to force me into a place of self-examination to see whether or not it might be true. So these are practices that we instill uh, and we seek to, to practice as elders. I'd encourage you, find, find multiple ways to, to adopt these practices because uh, this is, these are the ways that we love each other. This is how love is carried out in our body. Uh, and to conclude, I want to I tell you a story. I have a brother-in-law. Um, his name is Chris, and uh, he, has, uh, he, he lived in Peru for a while. And uh, sorry, Honduras. He lived in Honduras for a while. And uh, while he was there, he, he, he lived with some people who, who spoke uh, not even Spanish. It was like one of the, like, the tribal languages. He lived there. And, and um, they had this saying called vale la pena. And this is what that means. It means the pain is worth the cost. The pain is worth the cost. And he told me about this because there were a lot of really hard things that he had to face when he was living in Honduras for a little bit. But he thought about the outcome, and the people around him were talking about the outcome, and that was the thing that they repeated, vale la pena, vale la pena. What's the outcome then? The outcome, the mission of our church actually is able to move forward. The unity of our church is preserved. And you know what? Broken people start looking a lot and a lot and a lot more like Jesus, right? 
So, so the pain, whatever the pain is, is worth the cost because of the outcome that comes. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we close here today, as we prepare to go home, Lord, as we go into even, even community groups during the week and as we interact with each other, Lord, may we see that sometimes the pain that you are working out in our lives, sometimes the pain even of what a brother or sister might have to speak to us, that it is all for our good. Or that you might make us more and more and more like Jesus. And Lord, I pray that that would be the heart of every single person in this room, that we would look and smell a whole lot more like Jesus to the world around us. Lord, that there would be a compelling nature about the ways that we interact with people, that there would be a compelling nature about the ways that we live our lives, that people would see us and they would see you and you would be glorified because of it. Lord, would you do these things inside of us? Would you work out your discipline? And would you enable us to be concerned about each other as well for all of our development in Christ? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.